I have the distinct honor of introducing our special guest this morning, Rabbi Dr. Schneer Z. Lyman. Beyond the obvious introduction, <clears throat> you could all look up, and some of you have, his formal biography and his accomplishments, his academic accomplishments, his PhD from Penn and his teaching currently uh, working with graduate students, uh, overseeing doctorates at Turo, teaching at Bernard Revel Graduate School, having taught at Yale and Harvard and Oxford. So you could do that on your own and you can go to his website, Lyman Library, L-E-M-I-L-E-I-M-A-N library.com and you can check out hundreds of articles that he makes accessible to all of us in a vast array of disciplines so that you can find you can sign up for one of his famous tours of Eastern Europe. He knows, I know from personal experience, from a close family member, that he knows literally the back alleys of Krakow and Vilna better than I know Skokie. You may not know the impact that many of his talks have had on individuals who have come in contact with him, and that's really the qualitative difference here. He's not just a person of immense, enormous, vast, immeasurable scholarship, and one of the world's leading book collections. Having seen it in person, it is extremely vast. But it is his personal interactions that leave a huge impact and the teaching that he has, the type of teaching which leaves an impact. Just yesterday, so he was introduced by one of our synagogue rabbis who remembered the talk that he gave when this synagogue rabbi was in graduate school many years ago. And one of the members of the audience, the community members sitting next to me said, yeah, I remember exactly what he said 10 years ago. And one of the educators in the community uh, was talking to me afterwards, who is a, a very attuned and astute learner, himself a PhD, said, yeah, when I was 11 years old, Dr. Lyman came to our synagogue. He came to KMS and he spoke on Shavuos night. And this is what he talked about. He said, I can't remember, most of us can't remember much else. But when Dr. Lyman shares, he shares with such sincerity, authenticity, and scholarship, and humanity that it brings it all through, with, through, which makes it so memorable, which is really the most important quality of the introduction, which is, it appears in a few places, in a few contexts in this volume, called In the Dwelling of a Sage Lie Precious Treasures. You see, I also can pull out books at the last minute that are not planned. This is known as a Feshrift, which is a volume dedicated in honor of someone. There are other books that are dedicated, you know, different kinds of dedications. This is in honor of a living scholar that we have right here. And so his essays in Jewish studies in honor of Schneer Z. Lyman. And I just want to cite one small line, which is really the greatest honor that we have by having Dr. Lyman. The last special guest that we had in partnership with the museum was my teacher, Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter. And Rabbi Schachter contributed an essay and in the footnote, he describes how honored he is to contribute to this best drift. His exceptionally wide-ranging encyclopedic knowledge of virtually every area of Jewish scholarship is matched only by his stellar, outstanding personal character. I am in awe of the vastness of his learning and the depths of his human decency. He shares the bounty of his knowledge freely, selflessly, and graciously. And as a, a personal, I guess, somewhat cousin of Dr. Lyman, after 10 years of being intimidated, of approaching him at family gatherings, I finally mustered the courage 
to meekly say hello, imagine like an elementary school girl. And since then, he has been beyond generous and gracious with his time and insight and sharing things. So it is a personal privilege to welcome Rabbi Dr. Sid Zilein. So thank you for taking the time to be here in Chicago. And our conversation today is going to be about spiritual resistance, which is the subject of a group that many of us in this room and others, uh, people who are listening online to various recordings, we've been engaged in this for now almost eight years. Members of the Holocaust community, we get together on a regular basis and we talk about spiritual resistance. And we wanted to get your perspective. First of all, how do you see what is spiritual resistance in the Holocaust and why is it significant that we should be talking about it today? Great. I'll try to answer some parts of that question, but I'm sure during the conversation between the two of us, we'll, everybody will learn a little more about spiritual resistance. Uh, I just, can you hear me? I want to be sure everybody, the mics are working. Louder? Louder? Yeah. Okay. Put your mic on your outside collar. It is, that's where it is. <laughs> I'll just speak up louder and uh, if, if you can hear, let me, if you don't hear, let me know. The first thing I want to say is that uh, Rabbi Ruvain Brand is is very modest. Um, I should be asking the questions and interviewing him. He should be giving the answers. Uh, so it's very kind of him to arrange this so that uh, he's asking the questions and then I, I will try to answer them as, as best as I can. If you were listening careful, carefully to his words of introduction, he mentioned that I taught at many different institutions and what he was trying to say in a very nice way is that I have a difficulty holding on to a job. <laughs> so I want to begin to answer your question by perhaps addressing even a larger issue uh, that moves beyond um, uh, the significance of, uh, of spiritual resistance. So uh, I'd like to bring to your attention, in case it hasn't already been brought to your attention, a very famous passage cited first by Simon Weisenthal, uh, the famous Nazi hunter after the Holocaust. And uh, in a book that he wrote, he cited a passage that he himself heard um, um, SS militiamen cynically uh, admonishing Jewish prisoners. These are the words they heard. However this war may end, we have won the war against you, the Jews. None of you will be left to bear witness. But if, even if someone were to survive, the world will not believe him. There will perhaps be suspicions, discussions, research by historians, uh, but there'll be no certainties because we will destroy the evidence together with you. And even if some proof should remain and some of you survive, people will say that the events you describe are too monstrous to be believed. They will say that they are exaggerations of the Allied propaganda and they will believe us who will deny everything and not you. We will be the ones to dictate the history of the loggers. So I begin with that because every form of resistance during the Holocaust needs to be studied carefully. 
Spiritual resistance is just one category of the various types of resistance. And I want to be sure that even though the focus will be on spiritual resistance, um, we keep bear in mind other kinds of resistance. And um, I'll just mention a few. Um, of course, one, armed resistance, um, as in the Warsaw Uprising, for example. But even there, there are many different categories of armed resistance. Um, spiritual resistance, which we'll be focusing on, as in the Warsaw Ghetto, and as in all the ghettos um, of, in Eastern Europe that were established by the Nazis. And we'll bring some interesting evidence for what spiritual uh, resistance looked like. But there's a third category, and I'm not sure what the proper name for it should be, um, category of resistance as well by Jews throughout the Holocaust, and that was a determination to remain alive. And despite the Nazi persecution of Jews, many Jews were determined to outlive the Nazis. And they didn't, it didn't necessarily take the form of armed resistance or uh, spiritual resistance, but it took many different forms. Mothers um, spending 24 hours a day trying to find food for their children, um, uh, people hiding in bunkers, in malinas, uh, so that the Nazis wouldn't find them. Um, People escaping from the Warsaw ghetto and moving into the Aryan part of Warsaw to the, there was no ghetto, and um, dressing up as Poles and uh, uh, finding food and smuggling that food back into the Warsaw ghetto. Um, so again, this is not armed resistance, it's not spiritual resistance, but it's an incredible type of resistance, and it was widespread throughout the Holocaust, and in any of the books that you read, and any of the diaries that you read, Make sure to remember also to keep focus on, on this kind of resistance, that is the will to stay alive, the will to outwit the Nazis at all costs. Whatever has to be done will be done. And in every category, there are great heroes, and there are also people who made mistakes, who crossed ethical lines and did things that shouldn't have been done. And I don't know who are we to judge the one way or the other, but we have to bear that in mind as well. Now, I want to prove to you, as we begin the discussion of spiritual resistance, that uh, even spiritual resistance is not always <laughs> uh, to be glorified. Uh, and I'm going to remind you, you know it by heart, uh, of a famous verse in Scripture. It's a verse in, uh, in the book of Exodus 14. 15, if you'd like to see the verse, when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt by Moses and uh, Pharaoh comes with the Egyptian army after the Israelites and they're about to be destroyed by Pharaoh's army. And everybody's frightened to death. And the biblical verse reads in Hebrew, um, God turns to Moses and he said, Moses. And the word sa'ak, the Hebrew root sa'ak, also means to pray. And it looks like Moses was praying to God. After all, the Egyptians are coming with their army and uh, he's engaging in spiritual resistance. He's turning to God and he's praying. And the verse says, God says to Moses, why are you praying? And Rashi says, on oh, this verse, and God said to Moses, why are you engaged in prayer? 
This is hardly the time for prayer. Lead the Israelites to the Red Sea, where I will perform a miracle that the world will talk about for the rest of history. Anyway, I'm just giving you a sample that even with regard to spiritual resistance, it's not always what's called for, uh, but it's marvelous for us to focus on what did happen with regard to uh, spiritual resistance. So uh, you still want a definition of spiritual resistance? Let's go with the definition, although I do think it's interesting. Um, Maybe you could even categorize... Well, I I, I think, as we'll see the samples that I'll provide... I guess the best uh, uh, definition on short notice it would be um, any resistance on the part of the Jewish people that was motivated by religious teaching. Any kind of resistance, whether it was prayer or any other type, uh, 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 putting, wearing men wearing tefillin, women going to a mikvah, uh, it's absolutely incredible to hear the stories of what Jews did in the ghetto despite the Nazis. And in, of course, they did this in secret. It was all banned. They could be shot to death for doing any of these items. They did them anyway because they felt strongly um, that they will not allow the Nazis to destroy their religious beliefs. They are Jews, and they will remain faithful to Judaism to the extent possible under those circumstances. So maybe let's go to some examples just to appreciate <clears throat> Dr. Lyman's connection to some of these examples, one which we have discussed in our study group for those who are familiar beyond, uh, an essay that he published on Fagel and Rav, the Rav's daughter in the Vilna ghetto. If Dr. Lyman had not made a commitment to be here this weekend, he is actually supposed to be in Vilna dealing with the government of Lithuania to perpetuate and to safeguard the cemetery in Vilna. So we, we know that uh, you've, you've taught quite a bit about the Fagel and Rav, maybe some other examples, right? The case of Fagel and Rav was this young woman who galvanized her peers and students for spiritual activities and religious activities in the ghetto, which you translated a description of that into English. Other specific examples you would bring to our attention about spiritual resistance? Okay, I'd like to um, bring one sample immediately, which always moved me very much as soon as I can locate the text. This is in the Warsaw Ghetto, 1942. Uh, conditions are terrible, Jews are starving, um, many people are just dying from hunger. Um, and there was a great rabbi who was the head of the rabbinical seminary in Berlin. His name was Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. And it just happened to be that he got up and got caught in Warsaw when the war broke out and spent a good part of his time in Warsaw, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, holding a text in front of me, this is not available in English translation, but I'm just going to summarize it in English as, as I hold the text in front of me. Warsaw, 1942, it was common practice for people to walk in the streets of the Warsaw Ghetto, for Jews to walk in the streets of the Warsaw Ghetto, starving, fainting, falling to the ground. And um, people would just fall. You didn't know whether they were died or whether they were still alive, and people would just walk by. They were beyond helping each other. 
And it once happened on a Saturday on the Shabbat, which of course is a holy day for all Jews, and especially obviously for observant Jews. And um, this was late 1941, early 1942. Rabbi Weinberg was coming back from a synagogue service, this great rabbi, this brilliant scholar who published endless books and whose articles are still, books and articles are being published about him to this very day by great Judaic scholars. And uh, this rabbi who got caught up in the, in the Holocaust is walking along and he sees a body lying on the sidewalk and everybody's walking by. And the body, it wasn't the person who died. It also would be terrible, but it was someone who was still alive. And everyone's just walking by, walking right past the body, over the body, no one's taking notice. Because this was an everyday occurrence uh, in this period and at that place during the Holocaust. And this was near his uh, apartment. He lived, it was about a block away from where he lived on Karmelitska Street in, in Warsaw. He ran to his apartment. An old man ran up three flights of stairs to get into his apartment to get cash. He went to get money on Shabbat, and he took whatever money he had and ran down the stairs, ran back to the place where this uh, Jew was lying almost uh, breathless on the ground and began screaming to all the Jews who were passing by, help me, help this man, call for a doctor, bring water, call for an ambulance. It's Shabbat, I know. To save a life, we violate the Shabbat. Here's money. Here's this famous rabbi, the deed of the seminary, holding money in his hand and giving it to any Jew who would take it. Call for help. And finally, a small group, they heard a rabbi screaming with a long beard and so on. They, they decided to help him. Um, they did call for a doctor. They did bring some drink for this person, and he was taken to a hospital. This is a vivid description of a typical event that occurred at this time. So now this is resistance. It's spiritual resistance. It's just an incredible case. So one type. Amazing. <clears throat> what happens, though, when an episode or an event that we, we hear about or we read about turns out historically not to be accurate or not to be true at all? Right. So... Um, I'm going to tell you what my, my first uh, response will be, is that we expose all errors and all falsifications. We, meaning we the living who have survived the Holocaust. And we will admit only what has been verified by contemporary evidence and research. Uh, the last thing we want to do is to supply ammunition to the Holocaust deniers. And if we include in our literature any testimony that we know is false, and you'll soon hear some samples of testimony that was false, testimony coming from alleged victims, eyewitnesses, and so on and so forth, um, the answer is, the only answer, and that is we must expose it, admit it, admit it as being false, and let the world know. That we must do. Whatever else we do, we need to be honest about the Holocaust. There are enough horrors in the Holocaust. There's no reason for us to create any new horrors. That's my immediate response. Now, one, one, one sample, because we would be here forever if we kept 
keep giving samples. In the New York Times, January 1943, January 8, 1943, I'm holding the New York Times article in my hand. Uh, an essay appeared with the title, 93 Pupils and Teacher Choose Suicide. Now, January 1943 is quite early in the history of the death camps, um, in the history of the Holocaust itself, and all the suffering that you suffered, as you all know, it would be um, uh, later in 1943 in particular, if June, July 22nd, when um, uh, endless thousands of Jews are being killed in various camps and so on and so forth. But January 8, 1943 was uh, still a little early. Now I'm going to read to you um, a correct version of this letter. The letter is extant. We have this letter, so we know what it looked like. And uh, I'm not going to read you the entire letter, because uh, it deals with names of persons. But all I'll tell you is the letter is signed Chaya Feldman from Krakow. And she is described in the letter as a teacher of 92 students. Uh, so she, together with the 92, are the 93. And here's a letter that was published in the... New York Times. And from the New York Times, obviously it made all the news uh, letters, uh, it made magazines, it was seen the world over, and we'll hear uh, of some of the aftermath of, of what happened. But here's a letter, so you'll get a sample of what was said during the Holocaust. I do not know whether this letter will reach you. Do you know who I am? We met at the house of Mrs. Schneer and later in Marienbad, Mrs. Schneer is Sarah Schneer, a great woman, a Jewish educator who founded a religious school system for girls in Poland uh, early in the 1920s, uh, as early as 1918, actually. And um, that movement existed before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust, and it is still thriving to this day. So it's a reference to the, this great founder of Jewish education for women, Sarah Steer. When this letter will reach you, I will no longer be among the living. Together with me are 92 girls from Beit Yaakov. That was the name of the institution she created. In a few hours, all will be over. Regards to Mr. Rosenheim and to Mr. Gutmann, both in England. We all met in Warsaw at our friend Scholemann and um, Mr. Schulman was also there. We learned that the land to which this letter goes has sent us bread. It's a secret code, meaning food. We had four rooms. On July 27th, we were arrested and thrown into a dark room. We have only water. We are girls between 14 and 22 years of age. The young ones are frightened. I am learning our mother's Sarah's Torah. I am teaching them the Torah of my teacher, Sarah Schneer. And it is good to live with God, but it is also good to die with him. Yesterday and the day before, we were given warm water to wash, and we were told that German soldiers, Nazis, would visit us this evening. Yesterday, we all swore to die. Today, we were all taken out to a large apartment with four well-lit rooms and beautiful beds. The Germans won't won't know about this bath, and they, don't, they will not realize it is our purification bath before death. 
Today, everything was taken away from us. We were given nightgowns. We have poison. When the soldiers will come, we will take it. Today, we are together and are learning the confession all day long. We are not afraid. Thank you, my good friend, for everything. We have one request. Say Kaddish for us. That's the prayer that's recited by the living over the dead. Your 93 children, soon to be with Mother Sarah. Yours truly, and I told you her name was Chaya Feldman from Krakow. This was published in the Times. It was shocking. This was actually one of the first times that the Western world learned about the horrors of the Holocaust. And... Um, um, it, it was so moving that in, in Israel, in the same year, in 1943, a book was published on the 93. Uh, here's the title. You can, might be able to see it from the distance, but the title of the book is 93, the 93, and it's a memorial to the 93 women who committed suicide um, so that not to be uh, uh, raped by Nazis. And... Um, blessings from various rabbis, prayers that should be recited in memory of the 93. There are parks in Israel. Uh, there are streets in Israel called Rehov 93, the 93rd Street, named after uh, this event. Um, sadly, uh, sadly in the sense that we have to admit the truth. Um, the truth is this never happened. There were no 93 girls in Krakow, no institutions were still functioning in Krakow, no Jewish institutions in January of, 19, of 1943. Um, you, may, you may well know there was a concentration camp right nearby, Plashov. You've seen movies. If you saw Schindler's List, you know about how the Jews were forced out of Krakow and had to go into the, uh, to move into Plashov. At first, they had to move into a, uh, a, uh, a ghetto outside of Krakow, and then from the ghetto they were forced to go to the concentration camp, which was a, a slave labor camp and uh, related to the Schindler story, as you know, and it was also a death camp where many, many people met their death. There were no 93 girls in any building anywhere in Krakow um, in, uh, in 1943. Survivors from Krakow would testify after the war, we were there, there was no such thing. No one in the world heard about these 93 girls. We also never heard of Chaya Feldman, uh, this woman who was a teacher. We don't know about it, that there was a teacher at that institution by that name. Um, and I can actually add a little more personal knowledge, which would be beyond the article, technically, that I know the person who wrote the letter. <laughs> it's a forgery. And he's not alive. I'll even say, God bless him, because he did this for one reason only. He saw how what was going on in Eastern Europe, how the Jews were being destroyed, and it wasn't being reported to the Western world. And this was his way of bringing to the attention of the Western world the horrors that the Jews were going through. So he invented this. And amazingly, the New York Times bought it. And, uh, and from there, everything else that I told you. But every Jew alive today, what if you know about the story and if you know the evidence, you have to admit the truth, deny it, it never happened. Um, but worse things happened, believe me, in the Holocaust. So, so what happens when you have a story or someone's memoir 
where they're writing something after the fact and they're describing their own experiences, but the experiences that they're remembering in their own memory don't necessarily match up with the reality that existed at that time. They're misremembering it or they're slightly exaggerating it. How do we relate to that type of experience? The exact same answer I gave you before applies to such a case as well. Exaggerations are also not true. Um, but I think, I, I think you have in mind a specific case, so I will... Uh, Maybe. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to address that case. And it's, it's a man I knew also, Hillel Seidman. So um, you all know the story of the Warsaw Uprising. I don't think I have to go into any detail. After much suffering, after thousands and thousands of Jews in Warsaw being told to go to what's called the Umschlagplatz, a railway station, which put you on a railway car and took you, a cattle car actually, and took you to Treblinka, where you died almost as soon as you got there. Um, you were gassed to death. And every day, the Nazis came, we took 500 people more, sent them to the Umschlagplatz. The Jews were told that they were being resettled. They were told to come with suitcases. They're going to be resettled in the east. Everything will be just dandy. And, and unfortunately, many Jews believe that. They were so desperate that even the promise that maybe the Nazis are going to send us somewhere that's better than the Warsaw Ghetto is worth going. And they went like sheep to the slaughter for the most part. This went on from July 22nd, I think, till January uh, 42, till January 43. Uh, and then it was stopped for a while and it was continued. And, you know, by, by Passover of 1943, everybody knew that if you were going to the Umschlagplatz, you were going to your death. Uh, enough people escaped by that time from the cattle cars or from Treblinka in particular came back and reported to, uh, to the Jewish community in the Warsaw Ghetto, so they, they now understood what was going on. There's a man by the name of Hillel Zeidman who was, uh, lived in Warsaw, was very active in the Warsaw Jewish community, was a uh, librarian, journalist, primarily a journalist, wrote endless articles in Yiddish and in Hebrew, very well known, very well liked, and uh, he, he escaped from Warsaw in January 1943, uh, knowing full well what, the, what was happening, and, um, and that's, by the way, also an act of resistance, a very important act of resistance. What label you want to put on it, I'm not sure, but that belongs to that category of remaining alive. We will remain alive at all costs, and he managed to, uh, by miraculously, escape from, uh, from, from Treblinka. He wasn't in Treblinka, he escaped from Warsaw, but from Warsaw he was sent to another concentration camp. He was ultimately sent to France uh, to a concentration camp and labor camp, and he managed to escape, survived, and settled in the United States. And I remember him very well, I knew him. I actually have a, a book in my library from, from him, from Hillel Zeidman. He is no longer among the living. He kept a diary, and that's another kind of resistance, okay? 
He kept a diary, as others and as this wonderful museum is preserving, I know, certain diaries, which are so crucial for Jewish history. That's where we get the evidence, where we can judge what's true and what's not true, because we need to hear the voices of the victims and never forget the voices of the victims. So he kept a diary throughout the Holocaust, and in his diary, and I want to stress to you that it appears in the diary, but everybody skips that, the entry on, uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, it'll be January 1943. There's a little line that says, I left Warsaw in January of 1943. So anything in my diary after January 1943, January 1, 1943, uh, I wasn't there. I'm just presenting what I heard from my colleagues. Okay. That's a general introduction. Now, just to immediately get to the problematic passage, there was a very great rabbi in the Warsaw Ghetto. His name was Rabbi Menachem Zemba. Rabbi Menachem Zemba. There were many great rabbis, but he was, uh, he, he was not a guest. He was not someone who escaped from Berlin and came to Warsaw. He was the greatest rabbi in Warsaw. And, um, and he, like everybody else, suffered. And um, um, he was approached... After January 1, uh, uh, 1943, and asked, What is his view? It was at that time, after so many people had died in Treblinka, various Jew Jewish groups, young people, were gathering together and saying, Armed resistance is the only answer. And everybody wanted to know, or it was very important to know for many Jews, what was the opinion of Rabbi Nachum Zemba? Because he was the greatest rabbi who knew all of Jewish law backwards and forwards, and it wasn't an easy matter to discuss armed resistance. And it's difficult even now for me to even to mention or discuss armed resistance because you all know that the armed resistance, everyone died. And the whole ghetto was burned as a result of the armed resistance. So you have to, there are a lot of moral issues here which we're not gonna to resolve today. Uh, but we need to think a great deal about them. Um, now, if you're telling me that, okay, we're all going to escape, we're all going to try to escape. Some of us will make it, many of us are going to be shot to death. If I was a rabbi, I have no problem. <laughs> Everybody should escape. But, uh, but it's very difficult to tell all the Jews who have been striving to remain alive maybe they'll survive the Holocaust and tell them, well, now's the time for armed resistance. They had no arms. They almost had no arms. There was no way the group of, uh, uh, of resistors and the, the people who had pistols and whatever arms they were able to get, they were hoping to get more arms from the Polish resistance. The Polish resistance didn't help at all at that time. So they had nothing really, but they went ahead with armed resistance uh, in part because they knew what, what are the options. Uh, if not armed resistance, they're going to send us off to Treblinka. They'll shoot us to death. What are we going to do? Um, anyway, there was armed resistance, and they went to the rabbi. And Hillel Seidman reports in this book, but in a conversation before January 1, 1943, because he left Warsaw January 1, 1943. He could not possibly know what what Rebbenachem Zemba said or not. And he writes about how Rebbenachem Zemba supported talk about armed resistance, felt that there may be a need for armed resistance, 
And we know, in fact, that he did support uh, some kind of armed resistance, whether he was supporting specifically all those groups of young Jews who went ahead and uh, fired on the Nazis and it led to the destruction of the entire ghetto. Um, it's hard to know. Um, but Hillel Zeidman um, correctly reported what, um, what Rabbi Nachem Zemmer said, because I have other evidence. I, I didn't, I'm not limited to Hillel Zeidman. Um, the problem with Hillel Zeidman is, in those passages that are after January 1, 1943, he reports that Rabbi Nachem Zemmer supported wholeheartedly armed resistance. In the pages before January 1943, it's much more circumscribed. Now, I want to mention a word about armed resistance when we talk about armed resistance. There is a Jewish law. That's the halacha in all times and all places. If somebody is about to kill you, you're innocent. Uh, someone doesn't like you. He's coming now after you to kill you. An armed robber is coming in. He's holding a pistol and he's about to, uh, he'll shoot you if he needs, if you resist, right? Halacha is unequivocal. Kill him first. Every Jew not only has a right of self-defense, it is a mitzvah to engage in self-defense, but it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. If someone is trying to kill me and I have the ability, what does it mean that I should kill him? I should kill him if I can. I, I can't kill him if I can't kill him. But if I have a pistol and I can defend myself, wonderful. It's not going to affect the lives of anybody else. I, I certainly can't um, um, kill him, at the same time kill five other innocent people, because I can't shoot straight. Uh, that's not going to work. So the, the law is, if someone is about to kill you and you can defend yourself, you are obligated to defend yourself. But whether that law applies in a case like the Warsaw Ghetto is, it's not obvious. It's a whole different story because now you're going to respond to, or you're going to go out and begin the shooting. You know full well the, the Nazi army is just going to decimate you. It's no, no different than in a military war, a battle, you know, one country is fighting with another country. It's suicide to send out a unit that you know is going to be outnumbered, they're going to be shot to death, and it's going to cause harm. What for? So um, the problem with Hillel Zeidman was is that he presented Rabbi Nachum Zemba as being very forceful in favor of armed resistance after January 1, uh, 1943, and put words in his mouth that he never heard that he did here. So people are very upset about that, and there are people who, survivors of the Holocaust, who say Rabbi Nachum Zemba did support armed resistance even after January 1, 1943, or if you like, especially after, Janu after January 1, 1943. But unfortunately, there are others who say, we never heard it, we were there. We were there after January. We survived, we escaped from the ghetto afterwards. Uh, we never heard him say that. But I have to tell you, I have now met several Jews who were in Warsaw at that time, who knew Rabbi Nachum Zemba very well, who were the disciples. In fact, the best disciple of Rabbi Nachum Zemba. Um, they never made a move in anything they did unless they had the approval of Nachum Zemba, and they said they, fought, they were among the resistors. One of them escaped, and, uh, and they, he says that Rabbi Nachum Zemba told us it's proper. So, Say us the name so we can get it on the record? Yeah, well, I'll give you, I'll give you the name. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, but there still is controversy. You know, it's a very controversial <coughs> issue. There's testimony from two different sides. So th this is a case where it's it's not 100% the case that we know what his final position was, or whether, whether he would have condoned the Warsaw Uprising given the outcome that was likely. Um, uh, and I read his words. I have I have the book in front of me. I have the key pages. If you read it, it's written very carefully before January 1, 1943. He says, uh, he talks about Kiddush Hashem, about sanctifying God's name. A Jew is obligated to lay down his life if necessary. Uh, if, if a... If you're being forced by, uh, by, by Christians to convert to Christianity, um, uh, which a Jew is not allowed to do, um, and it's, um, you have a choice of accepting the religion openly or simply refusing to convert, and you might suffer the consequences, um, that's called laying down your life uh, and sanctifying God's name by, by um, re retaining your Jewish religion. But let me ask a question from sure. before we get to the passage, or maybe instead of it, is the average person, when we're searching for a story or when we encounter an article online, how do we know? How does the person know when they're doing research or they're preparing for... Okay, uh, <laughs> the, I think the answer is here, and God bless us, we have, we have wonderful scholars, we have wonderful institutions, museums like this one, um, where the evidence is... Posted on the on the walls in front of you, and and whatever is not on the walls in front of you, the scholarship that needs to take place, it's being done at uh, Yad Vashem in Israel. It's being done at universities throughout the world. Holocaust programs, Holocaust studies. Those are the people who examine all the evidence, and have the evidence, have access to the evidence. The average person has no access to this evidence. They know all the languages. You have to know German. You have to know Polish. You have to know Russian, and so on and so forth. To read these documents, we trust them. They are the scholars. So, um, if you, that's my immediate answer to your question. Uh, you know, if I didn't have a university training, and if I didn't have the teachers that I had, and if I don't read the books that I have and study the evidence that I can see on the internet and so on, I wouldn't be able to have an opinion on any of these matters. So. It, it, the answer is you've got to turn to the people who are expert in the field. I still remember the last time that Dr. Lyman was here, was in Skokie 10 years ago, he made an offhand comment that we need graduate schools today more than we ever did in the past. And I asked you about that, and you explained to me that the proliferation of information which exists needs to be filtered through a methodology and a specific scholarly approach which is just important for us to understand that not everything which appears online is a credible and useful source for documenting the Holocaust. We're getting close to the end, so I don't know if there are any uh, other specific episodes you want to share with us. I do want to get to book recommendations, so I'm putting that out there. Okay. If there are specific books that you think those of us who are interested in this topic of Holocaust education and specifically spiritual resistance, what are books or articles that we should read or episodes that we should pursue to understand, to enrich our understanding more. Okay, thank you. Uh, I will uh, suggest some readings. Um, I'll be happy to do that. Only English, please. Only English. Not okay. German or we'll, Polish. We'll finish earlier. Okay. No problem. <laughs> um, 
I just want to uh, make a comment that the first time I realized this was transformative for me. I never understood the Holocaust, uh, you know, as I learned about it and as I grew up, and I, I just couldn't fathom how this could happen, why it happened. And um, so I want to, and then one day I, I realized the following. Um, so I want to share it with you. And then I'll come with the bibliography. Um, throughout Jewish history, there's been much joy and much suffering. Uh, you know, we talk about the Holocaust so much that uh, uh, we almost view Poland as the enemy of the Jewish people. And, and sometimes it was. Uh, but, but it was also a place where we thrived for a thousand years. Uh, uh, Krakow, Warsaw, Lublin, the great institutions, the uh, half of the Jewish code of law was written in Krakow. The other half was written in Safed, in what was then, uh, you know, Palestine, uh, the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. Um, but we Jews, we did very well. Uh, we had great scholars, we had great doctors, physicians, and so on and so forth. In Poland, in Russia, artists, musicians, down through the 20th century. You all heard of Mark Antakolsky, one of the greatest sculptors of all time. Uh, he was a Jew who was born in Vilna, lived in Vilna, and ultimately made, made his way to St. Petersburg. So, yes, we suffered, but we also had great triumphs. So what happened in the Holocaust? What, what happened that something, there was no, nothing, no triumph at all, really. Um, the answer is, whenever we were persecuted, the First Crusade, Second Crusade, Third Crusade, Chmielnitsky, and so on, whenever we were persecuted, we were given the choice of conversion to Christianity. And many Jews did convert. Under those circumstances, uh, you went through the mo whether you, you know, you went through the motions of conversion. Again, you were stalling for time. You were hoping there'll be a better day. I could return to Judaism, as you know the story of many Muranos. Um, uh, but there was a choice. Under the worst circumstances, the Gentile nations gave us a choice. We could join them. We were ready for a new system that we never heard about before, which is the Holocaust. Hitler came in 1933, and he told us exactly what he was going to do. He already published in 1925, uh, a famous volume where he laid out exactly what he thought of Jews and what he wanted to happen to Jews. And from 1933-9, he implemented what he wanted to happen to Jews. Um, and he gave Jews no choice. We never had, that never happened to us before. Because Hitler was a racist, and Jews were genetically defective according to Hitler. And every Jew in the world had to be destroyed. We didn't believe it. The nations of the world didn't believe it. Everybody thought he was a fool. Um, and what happened happened in a short period of 12 years, 1933 to 1945. And by the time we figured out, by the time we realized that there was a final solution, that he really meant it, that he sent Einsatzgruppen and so on and so forth, killing Jews everywhere, in Ukraine, in Latvia, in Lithuania, and so on and so forth, just coming with 
armed cars and shooting Jews to death. Now we believe it. But we weren't ready, and, uh, and before I give you the bibliography, so I'm also addressing why it's so important that we're here and we should study the Holocaust. Everybody here should study the Holocaust as best as you can, because it can never happen again. And now we know what happened. And the more we learn about what happened, the better prepared will we be for the time when, when the next dictator comes and says, every Jew has to be destroyed. Next time we'll be ready. We weren't ready for this. This never happened before, and it's what I just described to you. Uh, it's this, new, this racism which developed in the 19th century but was developed by Hitler specifically for use against Jews. Um, and we learn, uh, hopefully we've learned our lesson. But before the bibliography gets, the one question here is from a spiritual standpoint, people will say, obviously, this is not a... It's at the magnitude, the enormity of this is not explainable or explicable like Rav Yehuda Amital Zichron Lavracha described in his conversations with Abba Kovner. He said, you can't explain it any better than I can. So the, the inexplicable nature of the spiritual or religious significance of this event, right, it's beyond, it's beyond anybody's... It, probably, probably true. I don't want to say it's beyond anybody because there are people in focus entirely on spiritual approaches to the Holocaust, like Rabbi Hutner and so on, who found explanations. Whether you accept them or not is another matter, right. but there are explanations. But I'll give you one explanation that, uh, that I'm not prepared to dismiss so easily. But what I said previously, that's the real reason. If you, know, you want to talk about theology, we'll talk about theology for a minute, but make no mistake about it. There was a change in the attitude toward Jews, something that we didn't know previously in our history, and that change we were unprepared for. And let's hope we'll be prepared for it in the future. Uh, you want a sample of, uh, very briefly, yes. uh, I hate to do this in one minute, but uh, it's, uh, it's basically called the free will defense. Um, There was a great Jewish theologian in Germany at the beginning of the 20th century, Franz Rosenzweig, who said, you know, the Bible teaches you're not allowed to lie, right? No one's allowed to lie. You're not allowed to lie. You have to tell the truth, okay? Midvar sheker tirchak. Not only you're not allowed to lie, you have to keep your distance from lies, which is why I'm always so close together with you. Um, but you have to keep your distance from keeping you all know in all our own lives, if you know someone who's a habitual liar and so on, keep far away from such a person. So um, he said, you know, imagine if God, it's God's law, it's in the Bible. Imagine if every time somebody told a lie, well, let's say the first time someone told a lie in Frankfurt, he lived in Frankfurt on Mines, he said in Frankfurt, imagine if a thunderbolt came down from God as soon as somebody made a lie, recited a lie, and the thunderbolt killed Hits him and kills him. You're out. You're wiped out. Right? 25 minutes later, somebody else in Frankfurt lies somewhere in a restaurant and uh, uh, doesn't tell the truth about the price of, uh, of a meal or something. And uh, uh, thunder and lightning come down, and he gets killed, he said. Everybody would become a truth teller in a very short time. Uh, there'd be no one in the world that would lie. For God to run this universe and to give us rules and regulations, how to live ethically and properly, it's only if we have a choice. 
And if we have a choice, we are rewarded. But if we have no choice, if we are frightened to death, then we can't do it. God cannot interfere in the world more than necessary. He has to give the world the freedom. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and all the other nations, Stalin, anyone who took part in World War II, they had to rise up and realize the dangers of a Hitler. And ultimately they did, but it took, unfortunately, a lot of time. For that freedom to take place, it's only possible. If, if God is punishing us immediately and interfering in everything that's happening, we have no universe. That's another approach. So, uh, while standing on one foot. Some bibliography, and I think this is very important, and I'm glad you give me the opportunity to, um, to mention some items. So, specifically about spiritual resistance first, and then general books on the Holocaust. Uh, do you want, you want only English? Okay. <laughs> no problem. Okay. Um, the best book is Huberband, H-U-B-E-R-B-A-N-D, Kiddush Hashem. It's in English. The title is Hebrew, but it uh, has an English title, K-I-D-D-U-S-H-H-A-S-H-E-M, Kiddush Hashem, which means sanctifying God's name. Huberband, uh, very briefly, uh, um, during the Holocaust, there were a group of Jewish intellectuals in Warsaw who, uh, who realized that we are being destroyed and um, who gathered together a group of writers, uh, and not just intellectuals, but from all aspects of the Jewish community. Children wrote books, letters, describing what school was like in the Warsaw Ghetto, describing their feelings. Mothers, fathers wrote about their children, wrote about themselves, their fears, and so on. Um, this is known as the Ringelblum Archives. And God bless Ringelblum, who had the courage. He was a secular scholar, a Jewish scholar, who realized that we were about all to be destroyed, and the world will never know what happened. He wanted the victims of the Holocaust to have a voice that would be retained, and so when the day comes, when the Holocaust is over, there'll be some record by the people who suffered themselves. Every day, what life was like in the uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto. So this name, this was a scholar named Emanuel Ringelblum. He gathered together a committee, and Huberman was in charge of spiritual resistance in the Holocaust. And he wrote a book, eyewitness account. He was killed in the Holocaust. He died in Treblinka. But it's just an amazing book. And uh, so, for spiritual uh, resistance, the book you want to read is in English. There's others in Hebrew, but in English, um, the book by, by Huberband. Um, there is a book by Esther Farbstein in English. Esther Farbstein, the last name is F-A-R-B-S-T-E-I-N. She is a wonderful scholar, a Jewish scholar. Her, all the books are originally written in Hebrew. But one of the books was, trans as far as I know, only one book was translated into English, The Forgotten Memoirs, The Forgotten Memoirs, and it's the Spurtis Institute of Jewish Studies that funded the publication of that book. So you would all do well to read the book, Forgotten Memoirs, which is eyewitness testimony during the Holocaust 
of spiritual resistance. So those are two books that'll, that'll do for, for that. The book that everybody should read, and it's written by a secular, great Jewish scholar, Samuel Kassow, if you haven't already read it, K-A-S-S-O-W, K-A-S-S-O-W, which is really a history of the Rigobum archives, but it's written beautifully, and it's probably the most profound book that I've read written on the Holocaust in general. So Samuel Cassell, Who Will Write Our History? That's the title of the book. Who Will Write Our History? Um, the latest edition, or revised editions, is 2018. Uh, absolute must book, because it presents secular perspectives, religious perspectives, all perspectives, all different attitudes of Jews, how they responded to the Holocaust, the full range, and uh, after you read that book, you'll really have a, a better understanding of the Holocaust. Thank you. I want to thank everyone for coming. Thank Dr. Lyman. We have a treat that he will be staying for a couple of minutes before <laughs> his flight. So we have a reception downstairs. So you're more than welcome to join us if you have any.